Hello, everyone. This is Victor Jackson. Welcome to the Bible Centered Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Bible Centered with Victor Jackson. I pray that you have been blessed by our Matthew series. Um, because Matthew 5 is a little bit longer, I had to um, split it in half. But the Word of God deals with some incredible and uh, sensitive topics. And um, I'm excited to delve delve deeper into this. Matthew is appealing to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, that he is their Savior, but not just their Savior, but the Savior of the world, that he did not come to just save um, the Jews are a select elitist group, but he came to die and save uh, the whole world. Um, I've been enjoying walking with you through this series. Uh, I do have uh, points on Spotify that uh, you can ask questions or uh, give comments, give feedback, uh, leave reviews. Um, I just love having the opportunity to speak with each of you. In Matthew 5, we discuss the Beatitudes, which are displaying uh, a kingdom community that the disciple is living with an eternity consciousness. Um, the disciple is walking with an etern eternal consciousness that transcends their culture. And the disciple lives differently than um, anyone else in the world because it is taking on the eternal teachings of their master, of their teacher. And they are not controlled or subjected to the cultures uh, that they are surrounded by. This is what Matthew 5 is all about. It's giving a higher standard that is greater than behaviors, uh, but something that is fueled on the inside, a, a kingdom on the inside. Later, he would say when someone tells you um, that the kingdom is here or there, he said, don't follow them. He said, for the kingdom of God dwells within you. And so something internal that begins to overtake the external, something on the ins inside your spirit that overtakes the body. Paul would later say that God desires to sanctify you wholly with your spirit, soul, and body. He did not say that you would be sanctified through your body, soul, and spirit. See, you're not sanctified from the outside to the inside. You're sanctified from the inside to the outside. Sanctification doesn't start from the outside because if it's just from the outside, that's just religious behaviors and uh, uh, just something that is motivated by peer pressure and that doesn't reach or penetrate the heart. God doesn't change from the outside in. He changes from the inside out. And so 
when Paul says God wants you to be sanctified, I sanctified wholly through your spirit, soul, and body, uh, that is the journey from the inside out. He didn't say body, soul, and spirit, which is the outside in. Why is this important? Because when you receive a word from the kingdom, the first place that it goes is into your spirit. And when a word comes into your spirit, over time, as it sits there and you marinate on it, it begins to penetrate into the soul, which is the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. The word starts transforming your mind. The word starts transforming your emotions. The word starts transforming your will. And then over time, what started in the spirit starts manifesting through your body, through your behaviors, and through your actions. And so when he is giving this kingdom, he, he expects it to be like a little leaven that over time starts changing the entire identity of the loaf. And this is what Matthew is portraying with Jesus giving the kingdom. He's not expecting them to immediately behave in alignment with these principles. And you see that the disciples uh, make this um, uh, fail many times trying to live this out. Because the truth of the matter is they really can't live it out until they are endued with the power of the Spirit in Acts 2. Until they are endued... With, with the promise of the Father, meaning these things, you, you cannot do this uh, through behavior modification. There has to be kingdom transformation. Uh, it cannot be behavior modification. It must be kingdom transformation because behavior modification, it is not lasting, number one. Number two, it doesn't penetrate eternity. But when there is kingdom transformation, it, it, it changes everything. It changes everything. You see, uh, I didn't drink alcohol or smoke or do drugs whenever I was in the world, not because I was spiritual, but because I was consecrated to basketball. I had a goal. See, that's what you call behavior modification. And so and so now, since I've been saved, now I, I don't I, I still don't drink or smoke or do drugs, but it's not from a place of behavior modification. It's not because it's not to appease a goal, it's because there's a kingdom inside of me that is demonstrating itself through my body, through my behaviors. That's what the kingdom is. And so kingdom transformation, it begins on, on the inside. And so Jesus is giving his word that the disciples might live this word out. Now, look at the transformation that takes place in the disciples because 
they go from multitudes. This is the journey of a disciple. Multitudes to a disciple to an apostle. From being a disorganized crowd to adopting the teachers, the uh, teachings, the, the teachings of the master to now propagating those teachings to others. Apostle, which means sent. So what started as a crowd moved into a discipline in the teaching, which moved to now propagating the teacher's teachings, being sent to establish the teachings in other regions. That is the lifespan of a disciple, where God called us out of our chaos and we begin to walk in his ways. And then he sends us to propagate those ways. And so these are shocking things that Jesus is preaching. Uh, because it, it's, a, it's a completely different mindset. It's a completely different mindset. It's literally turning the world upside down. And so... These kingdom concepts are upside down concepts because in Rome, if you want to be the greatest, then you push everyone down. But in the kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you must be servant to all. Everything's upside down. God, Jesus proved he was God, not, not just uh, by, uh, he proved that he was God by coming down to earth. He proved that he was God uh, because of his humility and his meekness. And later we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about whenever he, he went into Jerusalem and, and they cried Hosanna in the highest. There's so many things to take from that. It, this is profound. I can't wait to get into that uh, later in the Gospel of Matthew. But what, I, what I'm showing here is Matthew is showing on how his teachings with authority derived from the word are very different uh, than his peer group or who was around him. And so the kingdom, those that live according to the kingdom, they live by uh, a higher law um, that is greater than uh, the cultures around them living with an eternity consciousness. Something that penetrates the spirit, the soul, and the body. That you just don't behave properly, but it's it's coming from a transformed mind where I'm not being conformed to this world, but I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. Where I'm not doing behaviors out of a robotic nature or, or, uh, or a peer pressure or to fit in with a certain group. I have these behaviors because there's a kingdom that is fueling me. And that's the only fuel that'll last. Kingdom fuel, fuel, not fear, not guilt, not shame, but kingdom. Amen. Anyone that ever tries to use guilt on you is 
is not operating in the spirit of the kingdom because Romans 8 says that there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation in Jesus. Zero. And so where does this condemnation come from? It doesn't come from heaven. It comes straight from the pit of hell. People use condemnation and guilt as a way of control, and we talked about that yesterday because the word manipulate literally is is, is two words, mani, hand, pull, palate, which is to pull, which is to steer. It is to steer you into a negative place for their own benefit. Something about this podcast, people listening, is that you're going to be delivered from manipulation. Uh, you have a free will. You have a, you have a mind. God puts you on this earth for a reason. God won't even interfere with your free will. Why in the world should a man or a woman? And... Um, I talk about the differences between liberty and freedom. I'm going to read the text, guys. I'm just kind of building up. Uh, there, there's a difference between liberty and freedom. See, freedom, the definition is to be free without restraints. That's what freedom is. But liberty is different. Liberty means to be free within certain boundaries of the one that freed you. It is to be free within certain laws of the one that freed you. That's what liberty is. It's to be free, but it is to have an allegiance to the one that freed you. That is the responsibility of liberty, and that is different. If you look at it in the United States of America, they, they, they promise liberty um, because you're free, but now they expect obedience and allegiance to the representative of freedom, which, which is the flag. And to be free without restraints, mean, meaning that you're free to do anything. Uh, you're, free, you're free to murder. You're free to, to kill. You're, you're free to hurt people. You're free to do this. Well, you may be free to do that, but you're probably you're going to go to prison. Because you're free. You have liberty, not freedom. You're free to do whatever you want. But... Liberty means you're free, but you, you still have to abide by certain guidelines to the one that freed you. And the one that freed you demands your complete and total allegiance. I'm, I'm, I'm giving a history lesson here. And so liberty is to be free but as a result of that freedom, the one that liberated you demands your allegiance. That's why in these 
schools, they always put their hand on their heart and they pledge allegiance to the flag. Um, they pledge allegiance because because you're in a free country, and so what they're saying is now this flag, the, the, the this this flag is a representative of your freedom, so give it your allegiance. I'm teaching you something here. And so, liberty is when the liberator demands allegiance because they freed you. That's where, where, So when the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This is what he is talking about. That yes, God has set you free from sin, but that doesn't mean you get to do what you want now. <laughs> I'm going to help somebody here. Um, yes, you're free, but, but he wants your allegiance now to do his will, his guidelines, his teachings as a part of your gratefulness and thankfulness for being free. Who in the world has the audacity, think about this, a king, a king delivering you from captivity and bringing you into his kingdom. And as soon as you get into his kingdom, he asks you to do something and you say, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. And, and that's what, how people treat God. They, he saves them. They get born again of the water and of the spirit. They come into his kingdom. And then when God starts asking them to do things or reflect his teachings, they say, oh, I, I just want to believe. I don't, I don't want to do all that. I believe you're a king, but I don't want to do what the king wants me to do. And the king is calling me uh, to service or uh, to obedience, but I'm not going to do that because I'm free. That that is doesn't that sound crazy? You're in the, you're in his kingdom, but won't do what he wants you to do. Now you have to go into med medieval times and go into how it is back in the day. You got to get a history lesson on what happens when you say no to the king. <laughs> Is not good results. Uh, you imagine telling Queen Elizabeth uh, during the Renaissance era, telling her no. You imagine uh, telling King Henry no. You imagine telling uh, all of these people no and see how that would work out for you during that time. It wouldn't work out well. But this is a paradox because God allows you into his kingdom yet doesn't interfere with your free will. He wants the kingdom. He wants his spirit to persuade you into obedience. That's what preaching is. Preaching is persuasion. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Preaching is to persuade you to take on the identity of the Messiah, to reflect those teachings. Now, liberty is being free within the guidelines of the authority that freed you. That's what liberty is. And remember, liberty is different from, from freedom. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, you have, he said, 
you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine being made free from sin and a slave to righteousness. The doulos is the Greek word, a slave to righteousness. So he said, you're free from sin, but you're not supposed to be free from righteousness. He said, you have been made, the doctrine has made you free from sin and a slave to righteousness. Meaning now, see, I came into, into church bound by sin, but I'm leaving church still bound, but just not bound by sin anymore. Now I'm bound by righteousness. You see, people come into church bound and then they leave the church free. But we're supposed to come to church bound and leave bound. But now we're just bound to something different. When I came in, I was bound to sin. But when I'm leaving, now I'm bound to him. And that he freed me that I might become a servant or a slave to righteousness. That even when I wanted to do wrong, righteousness has shackled me down to his teachings. Are you getting what I'm saying? Y'all are really going to make me preach on this podcast. I'm getting excited here. And that's why Paul said, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, meaning that, that I don't even want to go to Jerusalem, but, but the spirit has bound me into an obedience to righteousness to do his will. I'm so wrapped up in God that, that, that even when I want to do wrong, I can't. See, when you receive his spirit, you know, it'll just start convicting you over, over everything. It'll convict you. You could be watching something and you don't think it's anything wrong with it. But then all of a sudden the Holy Ghost starts pricking your heart saying, turn it off. That's righteousness pulling you back. Say, hold on now. Remember you saved. You can't be watching that. It'll do that with relationships. It'll do that with friendships. It will do that in toxic environments that even if you want to be there, like something in your spirit won't allow you. That is you being a slave to righteousness, even when you want to blow up on them. Come on, somebody. Even when you want to give them a piece of your mind, even when you can poetically and masterfully, rhetorically rip them to shreds with your speech, the, the, the Holy Ghost puts a finger over your mouth and says, shh, that, that is you being a slave to righteousness. And, and Paul uh, appeals to this because he says, as you yielded your your members unto unrighteousness, even so yield your members unto righteousness. Meaning just as you were bound by sin and doing what everything sin wanted you to do, Paul said, now you need to be bound to righteousness that whatever God wants you to do, you do it. You know, those addicts, in, in, in the world, they, they can't let go. They can't stop. They can't stop because they are servants to that, to that product, servants to that, to that drug. They have no control. 
and 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 God wants us to be addicted to his presence, to be addicted to him. And, and as Paul described to people, he said they are they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. He, he wants you to replace the addiction. He wants you to replace the habit. Now, I just want to do whatever God wants me to do. I just want to submit to his will. I just surrender to him. That's why when we lift up our hands, we're saying, I surrender to you. When you look at the Hebrew, uh, I'm going to get into it. I'm going to read, guys. I'm going to get to Matthew 5, 27. <laughs> I'm going to get there. But, but when you look at the Old Testament and you look at whenever God changed Abram's name to Abraham, all God did was put an H in the middle of his name. When you look at, at that H, and, and, and the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's pronounced, it's pronounced, it's a breath. And, and, and that is how the Jews pronounce God to this day. They, they won't put anything else, um, any uh, words around his name. It's just... That, that, that's how they pronounce God's name. That's how pr they pronounce Jehovah. And so what God did is he put the letter H, which when you look at the ancient Hebrew of that letter H, it is literally a pictograph of a man lifting his hands in worship. You guys need to go look this up. It's a pictograph of of the letter H, the early ancient Hebrew letter for H, it was a man lifting his hands in worship. God put that in the middle of Abram's name where he became Abraham, where God's nature, he put it into Abram's name. So whenever Abram's name was, was mentioned, his name was mentioned as well. Where Abram went from Abram to Abraham in 25 years, uh, where he took on the nature of God, where God put his nature in Abram. That's what the kingdom is. God wants us to be wrapped up into him. That's why we get baptized in his name, because he wants his identity upon us. Because with his identity upon us, it shows the world that you're his and that you're living according to his principles. This is why in the book of Acts, it says, and they were first called Christians at Antioch. Because Christians, it just means to be Christ-like, meaning no one announced themselves to be to be that they were Christians. But when they saw the behaviors of these people, it was so different to their world that they called them Christians. See, 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 in, in the early church, they didn't call themselves Christians. The world took notice that they were behaving under kingdom principles and they called them Christians because they were living their lives in alignment to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And, and, and that is so powerful. And, and this is the desire of the kingdom that we take on the teachings and the nature of Jesus and we apply it to our lives. That we, that we are 
literally bound to him uh, by our choosing, not a forced bound, but, but by our choosing because we want to be close to him. We want to love him. We, we want to be wrapped up in him. And so I, 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 I love uh, this concept because Paul would say, I wanted to go here, but the spirit forbade me. You see, that's being a slave to righteousness. It's where I'm taking on God's instructions, but I'm taking it on willingly. He's not forcing me. I'm taking it on willingly. All right. So Matthew is presenting these, these, these kingdom these kingdom teachings that the disciples are to reflect. And later that they, as apostles, that they would propagate. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, ESV. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, ye have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Last scripture, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I, I love this um, because what God is speaking here is the concept of 
kingdom principles that the disciples are to live by that are a contrast um, to the world and their culture. And this is what Matthew 5 through 7 is all about. It's all about living by a different standard, not living by our cultural standard, but living by a biblical standard. Now, let's let's walk through this. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now look at the standard here. He goes beyond the behavior. He goes beyond the behavior. You see, yes, it is a good behavior to not commit adultery. But he takes it a step further and says, if you look on a woman or, or a man to lust after them, you're already committing adultery in your heart. See, Jesus is dealing with the heart more than the behavior. He wants transformation to come from the heart. David was imperfect, but he was a man after God's own heart. Saul, he, 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 he did all the behaviors properly, but his heart wasn't right. And God wants your heart. He did not uh, expect a, he's not just talking about having a physical purity. He's talking about having a mental and emotional and a spiritual purity. What he's saying here that, that it's it's not enough to just not do the action. He's dealing with the heart that fuels that action. Later he would say that out of the heart proceeds this evil and this wickedness and adulteries. Only God can change the heart. The seat of man's emotions. Only God can change that. Only his kingdom can change that. So he goes beyond the behaviors. See, people could pat themselves on the back. No, I've never committed adultery. But what Jesus is saying is, no, you haven't committed adultery, but, but you've been looking. You've been watching things. You've been you've been looking at at porn. You've been you've been looking at women. You've been looking at men. And yes, you're still in a covenant relationship. And yes, but 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 the issue is your heart is desiring those things. And and we this cannot be healed by behavior modification. This can only be healed by heart transformation. Because because the condition of the heart affects the condition of the relationship. Because it doesn't feel good if a man finds his, his woman looking at other men. It doesn't feel good to a woman when she finds her man looking at other women. That that is damage, that is damaging to covenant relationships. 
And so Jesus is dealing with the root. He's dealing with the, with the source. He wants a purity of heart. That, which is greater than the behaviors alone. See, when people physically backslide, they don't, they don't physically backslide first. No, they backslide in their heart first. These things don't just happen uh, in, 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 in moments. This thing progresses over time. No one commits adultery or, or, or fornication uh, off, off of uh, a whim, the, the heart, the mind, the, the soul has been meditating on that. And so Jesus is nipping it in the bud as a heart issue and saying, give me your heart so I can do something with that. Uh, this might be one of the more uh, uncomfortable podcast episodes, uh, but this is the power of going verse by verse. You, you deal with what's uncomfortable. And so I'm being faithful to the word of God where I'm, I, I am giving you the entire counsel of God. This is why I love verse by verse, because there's things that you can't ignore and that you can't pass up. So he goes beyond just the proper behaviors. He's dealing with motives and he's dealing with the source of how these uh, sins happen. And so he goes with the hyperbole. Now he exaggerates in verse 29. He says, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It'd be profitable for you if one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. And if the right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not your whole body to be cast into hell. And, and so what, what he is saying here is, He's using hyperbole. He's not expecting you to physically take out your eye and physically to uh, uh, cut off your hand. He's not, uh, but he's stressing an importance using hyperbole, saying whatever you need to do to discipline what you're looking at and to discipline what you're touching, you need to do it because these things can keep you out of eternal life with him. Because, because the, the eye is, is the, the medium. It's the window of the soul. It's the medium that everyone gets tempted. The, the hand, it's the action that result from, from lusting. So what he's saying is what, what we see, what we watch can affect our eternity. What we touch can affect our eternity. And, and later in another place, he says, even cut off your foot to, be, so to make sure you don't get cast in hell. So where we go can affect our eternity. But Jesus taught us how to deal with this later was that he, he had the crown of thorns above his eyes. He had nails in his hands and he had nails in his feet. Jesus went through that for us to keep us out of hell, that we may spend everlasting life with him. So he is the source of overcoming temptation. 
He is the source. His word is the source to overcoming uh, lust because these things can affect our eternal life. So he's showing us that what we do in this body impacts us, that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost, that we got to protect this temple. We can't just allow anything into this temple. We can't just be given over to all this lust where it affects and taints the purity of our temple. So he uses the hyperbole. He said, pluck it out if you need to. Cut it, cut it off if you need to. He's not saying to do that, but he's just showing how important it is that, that we allow God to deal with our heart. He uses this overstatement to show the importance of having an exclusive devotion to our spouse and and whatever it is what, what he is initiating here is the need for boundaries if 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 you are are married you have to have these boundaries even when you're single you need to have boundaries to keep yourself from sinning but but when you're when you're married, you ought to have boundaries on on how you 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 speak and communicate uh, with the opposite sex. There should not be any late night phone calls or late night texts with anyone from the opposite sex, because you what you're doing is you're putting a boundary and and no you're not tempted, but you put a boundary to not even allow yourself the opportunity to get tempted. So, so what you want to do, if, if, if there is a sin, you want to put as many boundaries between you and that sin. And so, and so what happens is when you put, say you have five boundaries before the sin, if you put five boundaries before that sin, what happens is if you start getting tempted, you break that first boundary. You still haven't sinned, but you broke the boundary. It could be you getting the person's phone number. But when you break that boundary, you're going to get convicted. You haven't sinned yet, but you're going to feel conviction because you know breaking those boundaries is leading you to a path of partaking in sin. Say it's getting the number. That's 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 a red flag. Say it's it's calling at night. That's another boundary that you just broke. And so you will get convicted by breaking those boundaries. You didn't sin, but what I do is make you back up and say, "Oh God, forgive me," and you start repenting there because you see your heart was leading you toward partaking in that sin. And so it's a it's a red flag that says, "Oh, I better I better get my prayer up. I better." I better uh, uh, make sure, you know, uh, I'm spending time with the right people. I got to be careful what I'm listening to, what I'm watching. I got to be careful on on what I'm engaging in, that my heart would try to lead me there. And then you come and say, God, I need that. I depend on you. But But if you have no boundaries and it's just you and the sin, then when you're weak, 
all of a sudden you can partake of it quickly. I'm helping somebody here about the need for boundaries, not only as a single person, not only as someone who's not married, but someone who's married. Boundaries are important. I'm helping somebody here. And so let's go to it's it's this is a rougher episode but we're going to we're going to be faithful to the word. Matthew chapter 5 verse 31. It has been said whosoever shall put away his wife uh, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, the, the, what Jesus is dealing with now is, remember, we're talking about a kingdom community that's different from the cultural norms. The issue in Jesus' day was that, number one, during this time, the woman really didn't have a, a right to divorce during this time. And because the woman had no legal right to initiate a divorce, these men were abusing this concept of divorce. Later, Jesus would say that Moses allowed you to get divorced because of the hardness of your heart. But then he says, but from the beginning, it was not so. That in the beginning, he made them male and female. And then the beginning that when Adam and Eve got married, that they became one flesh. And so with that being said, is that he shows the intention of marriage was, was for man and woman to become flesh, one flesh together for them to become one, you know, that Eve was a helpmeet, which means that she was someone to be by his side. That was the original intention of, 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 of marriage. That she was to support what he is lacking. That's what a help meet is, to support what he's lacking. That they are to complement one another. That a woman has, has uh, gifts that a man doesn't have. That a man has gifts that a woman doesn't have. That a woman has strength, strengths that a man doesn't have. And a man has strengths that a, a woman don't, doesn't have. But when they become one flesh, they are complete. They, they complete one another. They, they complement one another. And so at this time, the man was just putting away his wife for any reason. When, when you look at the historical documents and when you look at the teachings and the writings of the rabbis during this time, they taught that you can put away your wife for anything. They didn't have a respect for the covenant of marriage, of holy matrimony. They were putting these, these women away for anything. There, there are sources that show that if a woman burnt a meal, the man had legal right to divorce her, and the man would divorce his wife over a bad meal. They were divorcing their wives if they saw another woman more beautiful. And so they were being nonchalant with the holy commandment. Jesus calls the church, the church is his bride. We are the bride of Christ. And so, and so 
even in Ephesians, it would say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so, and so there's always the comparison between a bride and the church. And, and God is giving a holiness to the covenant of matrimony. And the problem is they were treating it like it wasn't holy. And they were they were throwing away, away these covenant relationships for, for just the smallest things. And, and he was trying to bring back the original intention of marriage and the holiness of it and the beauty of it. That that it, that only if if someone is is committing adultery in in that marriage what what he's emphasizing is not not that this is just the only thing but but he's emphasizing that some something that the person did you know disrupted that covenant and 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 that could be abuse that, that that could be uh you know someone getting uh, beaten or or just just the terrible things but what he is showing here is is he's emphasizing the seriousness of marriage and they were treating divorce so nonchalantly he wanted to show the seriousness of divorce When you consider the, the seriousness and just the damage that, that it does, I mean, anyone that I know that has gone down this path of divorce, they they, they tell me on, on what a strain it is on them, you know, uh, physically and spiritually and on their kids. As, you know, my, my parents, you know, my mom and my stepdad, they divorced. And just the identity crisis that I went through when they went through that, it was a dark time in my life. And my stepdad was abusive, but it, it still hurt. And so many people have legal grounds to divorce, but what he's emphasizing here is the seriousness of marriage and, and, and that divorce isn't to be something that's carried nonchalantly just because there's a disagreement or, or something like that, or I don't like how they put toothpaste on their toothbrush, and I don't like that, you know, uh, that that these things are to, to be approached seriously because marriage is a sacred institution, and and for anybody that's been divorced, let me say this: uh, God doesn't want you to live in this weight of guilt and this weight of condemnation. Um. All the time, if his grace is sufficient to to uh, forgive a murderer, his grace is sufficient uh, to forgive and cover anyone that has been divorced. So don't put shame on your life and, and walk in this. Uh, 
the never-ending abyss of guilt. And and it, and it, where you don't ever feel like you can be accepted into uh, community again because you've been through that. I'm telling you, wh- whether you're married or divorced, one thing that will never change is God's love for you. And so uh, you have to understand that you are identified by God's God's love, um, not any societal standing. Number one, you're made in the image of God before you were ever married, before you ever had a child. You are made in the image of God, and your value has to come from his presence, not uh, anything from the culture. But he is stressing the importance of marriage. And and the sacredness of it. But if you have ever been through a, a divorce, um, it it I know it was serious. I know it was painful. I know it was hurt. You can even feel holes in your heart right now. But God never intended for you to have that that burden and that weight and that stigma over your life forever as if you are less of a person because you have been divorced because no one knows all the reasons of what went through and why you did it but what Jesus is emphasizing here is he's dealing with the nonchalant nature which they're handling a sacred institution And divorce was super widespread in ancient times. People think that just in the United States, because of so many people getting divorced, that it's like this pandemic of divorce. But all throughout, before Jesus even came to earth, divorce was widespread. But what God is showing is that his intention it was not for marriage to just be treated as 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 nonchalantly, where you're just you know uh, people divorcing uh, their their um, wives over trivial issues, you know over over trivial issues. Well, they didn't cook well for me. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. You know what he wanted to help them understand was the consequences of how they can negatively affect another because if you're putting some way oh, one away for divorce um because of them not cooking a good meal for you you just sent your wife home in shame cuz now she has to go back this is in the ancient near east i'm talking about the in this text that i'm talking about now you would have to send her back to live with her parents in shame. And they would try to find a quick way to remarry to get that shame off of them. And and, and this this is because of some irresponsible husbands that that were just 
saying, oh, I found someone prettier. Okay, here's a writing of divorcement. And, and it is an inhumane, it's really inhumane, the lack of care that someone could have for their spouse. And so this is, again, a kingdom community where there is a love. Later, we're going to be talking about how he even says to love our enemies. If you can love your enemy, you can love your spouse. And your spouse is worth fighting for. Your, your spouse, your marriage is worth fighting for. Your, your marriage is worth contending for. And I understand there are situations, again, again, I, I understand stand those things, but understand when you go uh, to the path of divorce, just understand that, that uh, it's a serious thing. And I, I know it hurts. But marriage is, is sacred here. And uh, any young person considering marriage, uh, understand it's a sacred institution. God blesses marriage. And this is, this is you know, very unpopular what I'm saying. But as you can see, I'm just reading the Bible. This is the power of expository teaching. I'm just reading the Bible, but there is life after divorce. That's what I want to tell you. I don't want you to identify your life by the divorce or, or by the shame or by what happened. I want you to know that there is life after divorce because you have a hope in Jesus Christ. And understand if Jesus gives a murderer a new beginning, he can give a divorced person a new beginning. He can give someone a new beginning that messed up. He can give someone a, a new beginning that committed uh, a fornication or committed some type of sin. Jesus is still able to heal and restore and lift up and do a work. And so I want you to understand that the hope that is in Jesus Christ that he's still able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we're able to ask and even think. And so the sacredness of it is that he doesn't take a liberal side of divorce or a conservative side of divorce. He just takes the, the biblical side, and that is that he made the man and female, and what God has put together, let no man put asunder. So don't fall into the cultural, what, what this kingdom principle is, is don't fall into the cultural lackadaisical nature in which people treat marriage. That as if it's just a legal contract. And he's saying approach it with a sacredness because he didn't like how they were putting away the women for anything. And the woman didn't have a voice a woman would have appreciated uh, Jesus saying this because at the time they couldn't even initiate a divorce. He's putting an end to the cycle of how women are being treated during that time and the shame that these husbands were causing their wives when they were putting them away. A woman in that time appreciated it 
because they didn't have those legal rights to resist a divorce. Man, I love the word of God because it puts everything in perspective. Verse 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not uh, forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, or nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than this cometh evil. So now in, in this kingdom, what he's saying here is, is he, he's dealing with how we treat one another in the kingdom. That how we treat our spouses affects, affects our standing in the kingdom. And how we treat people and how we speak to people affects our standing in the kingdom. And so, basically, what he's saying here is that when you start saying, I swear, you, you open yourself up for problems. Because he said, when you do more than that, you know, you know, just evil's coming because you're a human. You're a human and, and you have shifting emotions. Have you ever made a promise and then the conditions changed? You ever say, I'll swear I'll do this, but you started seeing some more evidence of something and so you wanted to go back on it, but you, it would make you look bad? Because we're humans, we, we, we don't always live up to what we're promising because, because we are flesh. The only one that can swear is God. And God swore to Abraham. He said, I swear by myself that I will bless you. What he was saying is that there would have to be an error in me in order for your promise to not come to pass. What he was saying here is, is that when he makes a promise, he knows the end from the beginning. When he swears, it's already done. But because we're finite humans, when we swear, we don't know the end from the beginning. So we can go back on what we've promised. And when we go back on what we've promised, it creates it creates opportunities for evil. It creates opportunities for friction and for and for division and for strife. Because we don't have the authority to even make one hair on our head white or black. So we said, just say yes. And just say no. And let that be it. Because if you do more than that, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall hit you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I, I want you to catch this because he's dealing with the law of retribution. And with this law of retribution, it's, it would say uh, when Moses was giving the law in the wilderness, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and it was a law of ret retribution. What you have to understand about this law, dealing with the context of humanity, this law was a very merciful law in that time. 
I think I woke somebody up right there. That, that law was a very merciful law in that time. So you see glimpses of mercy in the Old Testament. And, and this is a lot more merciful uh, than it looks on the surface. Because when it says an eye, an eye, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, look what it was saying. Here's the law of retribution. You cannot go beyond the level of the offense. Oh my goodness, I'm going to help somebody here. The mercy is that you could not go beyond the level of the offense. Meaning, if they hurt your eye, you cannot take their life. That's an uneven judgment. If someone breaks your tooth, you cannot take their life. And so when he said an eye for an eye, meaning if you want to exact punishment, if you want to get retribution, you can only go up to the level of the offense. This law was there because it understood the nature of humanity for revenge and to try to take back more than what was there. It's like someone scratching your car with the key. And so you return, uh, you return, you get revenge by going and put a bomb in their car and blowing their bomb, blowing their car up to smithereens. You didn't meet the level of offense. You went beyond because you gave into your flesh. So in the Old Testament, what God was doing was he understood the propensity for men to go beyond and exact more than what was required. So what he said is, listen, if someone hits your eye, you can only get their eye back. If someone takes your tooth, you can only get a tooth back. You cannot go beyond the level of the offense. That's merciful. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall hit you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And so... He, what he's trying to eliminate in the kingdom is the need for revenge. In, in the kingdom, that you don't combat evil by getting retribution or performing an evil act back. What he is saying here is, is to not escalate the situation. Um, this doesn't mean going and finding people to slap you. This is no excuse to live in a state of abuse. I want you to understand this. This is just a kingdom principle that someone's actions doesn't dictate how I feel. Someone's actions cannot manipulate my emotions. Someone's actions doesn't dictate how I feel about myself. You see, you can be manipulated by people's actions. See, some people know what buttons to press in your life and they know how you're going to respond. And so they do that like they're a puppet master to get you to feel a certain way, to get you moody. See, they, they know what to say to make sure you're depressed that day. They know what to say to get you angry. They know what to say. What God is doing here is leaving the response up to him instead of up to them. You're living by a different standard. You're living by a standard of the kingdom instead of a standard of the culture. 
So this doesn't mean running into abusive environments, into abusive situations. You have to be as wise as a serpent, as harmless as a dove. Stop signing yourself up to be abused. And so you can, you can love somebody while having a boundary to make sure they don't hit you. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. So in the law, they prohibited from you being able to sue someone for their cloak because the cloak is what helped keep them warm when it was cold. And so you take the cloak and, you know, it was prohibited. That's something too precious. But he's saying if someone sues you to take away your coat, give them your cloak also, meaning don't take revenge. Just just continue to show more love. Don't don't get revenge. Let your your response to everything just be in in love. Let it be an unexpected response. They're trying to elicit an emotion from you to manipulate you. Give them a kingdom emotion, which is love. Verse 41, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with them twain. Now, the, the Romans, they were known for, for compelling people to carry a burden or carry their equipment, and they could do that up to a mile, and you had to do it out of obligation. That, that's why they did that with Simon the Cyrene. Simon the Cyrene, they compelled them him to carry Jesus' cross. He had to do that according to Roman law, and they could have them do that up to a mile. That was the limit. You could do it up to a mile to carry their equipment or a burden or anything. They could do it up to a mile. But he says, if someone makes you do it a mile, he said, go with them two miles. Go above and beyond the expected response. Because the first mile is out of obligation, but the second mile is out of love. I'm so thankful that we serve a second mile God. I'm so thankful that we serve a second mile God. He's the God of the second mile, meaning the first mile, which is the Old Testament, that was out of obligation. But the second mile, when he became flesh, that was out of love. We serve a second mile God. That he didn't just go the first mile and give me the law. Ooh, he went the second mile. He became flesh for me, and he died on the cross. My word. He, he The first mile, we had to go to him, but the second mile, he came to us. It's the magnificence of a mile. So he's saying that, yes, it's a burden to go one mile, but out of love, out of the kingdom, unexpected response, you go with them a second mile. That's the distinction between kingdom, community, and the culture. Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow from thee, don't turn away. Don't turn away. 
Freely you have received, freely give. Verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's incredible. This is another scripture that people don't like reading. But in order to stand out in the kingdom, one of the distinctions of a kingdom community is the love that they walk in. That is a distinction in this world where I'm not trying to get revenge on my enemies. I'm just going to love them. And when they're speaking curses on me, I'm just going to speak blessings. And I'm going to do good to those that hate me. And I'm just going to pray for them that keep trying to use me. And those that persecute me, I'm going to pray for them. See, in the culture, it's to exact revenge and for there to be warring groups and there to be gangs, rival gangs against, against one another. But he says in verse 45 that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, the standard is different now. My standard for my love is not the culture. My standard for my love is the father. My goodness. The standard for love is. Is the father. Um, uh, over. over uh, I, I would say 12 years ago. There was. A. Uh, a situation. Where there were. Um, I noticed that there were. Uh, two individuals that. Uh, just didn't. Whatever it was, it just seemed like they didn't like me. I didn't know what was going on, uh, but I was just trying to keep unity. Well, all of a sudden, God gave me a vision. And the vision was of these two individuals. They were running down the street together. They were doing a morning jog together, and they were just lying on me and putting my name in the ground. They were just putting my name in the ground, just lying. And I was, I came out out of the vision and I was disturbed because of the division that this could cause in the church. So I called one of the individuals, the, the, the vision was so real, I knew it happened. I called one of these individuals and I was on the phone and I said, hey, uh, did you run with such and such? And did you say this and this and this about me? And I nailed it. The guy says, um, the guy says, yeah, I did. I, I'm so sorry. I didn't know if he was for me. I said, hey, man, I'm for you. I support you. I love you. But I'm calling you because I'm trying to do unity. I'm trying to have unity. And, and, 
you know, you can let go of a grudge, but the person you're talking to, they hold, they can hold grudges for years and it, it can really hurt, uh, you know, their standing with God and uh, their ability to break through. I said, I'm sorry uh, if I've come across, you know, any, any way that would make you think that. I said, but man, I, the whole purpose of this call is for reconciliation. We prayed on the phone together. It went well. Well, that went so well, I called the other individual he was on the phone with. And so, I mean, that, that, that was running with him in that vision. I called him. I said, did you say such and such and such about me when you were running with such and such? And this guy had a different response. He said, yeah, I said it. And what you're going to do about it? And he was just being very contentious. And he said, and, and you're being a real, you're being, this, this is the words that he used. He says, and you're being, uh, you're being a little girl about it because you're calling me on the phone instead of meeting me in person. And I said, well, well, let's, let's meet in person. And, and he was just riling me up. He was trying to elicit some emotion out of me. I said, well, let's meet. Let's find a place to meet. And so we find a place to meet. I meet with them. And they are just, I sit down, we're talking. They're just lying on me and just going, going in on me, trying to get an emotion, trying to make me angry, trying to make me blow up. You know, there's some people that, uh, they they will think something of you, and so they will try to do whatever they can to you to get an emotion out of you to justify how they feel about you. From their own heart, they project their own desires on you, hoping that you live up to that. So he was going in on me, and I said, brother, I'm not here to defend myself. The only reason I'm here is for reconciliation and unity. And when I got out the car before that meeting, I was I was planning on having some choice words with him. But when I got pulled up to that meeting, I had a water bottle uh, next to me. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Victor, you're about to wash his feet. So I went into that meeting, understanding that he's going in, going in and going in. I said, brother, I just came for unity. I just came for reconciliation. May I please wash your feet. And right there in that um, meeting, I got down on my knees, took his shoes off. He took his shoes off and I began to pray over him, washing his feet and humbling myself before him. And what could have been a very bad escalated situation, it became a place of reconciliation. Because I would not give in to his, his threats or his attitude or what he was wanting from that meeting, that contention. I was operating by a different standard. I was operating by a kingdom standard. And that allowed for the next several years for us to have a good relationship because I humbled myself. But I could have went about that a very different way. I could have went about that a, a very different way.
and and that is that is super you know when you're operating by a different standard it's different several years ago i was i was preaching in a place and uh, found out they didn't want to um uh put me in a hotel now i, I when i go somewhere I, I don't feel like like i deserve a hotel or anything like that um or a place to stay. People do that out of their goodwill and, and kindness. And and I thank God for that. But the custom is that someone, if they invite you to speak, they have a place for you to stay. And so I went to go and um, speak at this place. And th there was no place for me to stay um, and so I literally had to go and sleep in the Starbucks parking lot with my car running. And this was several years ago. I slept in the Starbucks parking lot with my car running. And then I came back for another service. And when I came back for another service, the pastor got up and started talking about how we got to treat everyone kind and and being generous and and caring about your fellow brother you know he was saying all of this while i was just sleeping in the hotel in, in a in a in a starbucks parking lot so i thought to myself you know what when i get up to speak i'm going to tell them on how much i've given to missions this year how i've given over $10,000 to missions and I was planning on saying that, but the Lord spoke to me and said, don't, don't you say a word about that. You just get up there and bless the people. I said, okay. I got up to speak. I preached under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. The pastor and his family were in the altar weeping. And whenever I was done, and I had to uh, drive several hours home because I didn't have a place to stay. And on my way back, the Lord spoke to me and said, Victor, you passed the test. He said, you passed the test because, because although you were, weren't treated as you were supposed to, you still responded in a kingdom manner. And the kingdom transcends culture. He said, you know how many people I've given a pure word to that by the time they release it to the people, it's tainted because their hearts begin to manipulate the word and they use the word to push an agenda instead of just edifying my people as I've called them to. He said, it's very rare for me to find a vessel that I give them a pure word and it comes out pure with no, with no motive, no subtle shots not trying to get revenge, not trying to hurt anybody, not trying to appear like you're better than someone. He said, you passed the test. You got up and you fed my people and you didn't allow your emotions or what you were going through to dictate the word that came out of you. You passed the test and I'm about to elevate you. Because now I see you can handle adversity 
without allowing adversity to affect the truthfulness of my word and the purity of my word. Well, God spoke that to me so clear. I said, you know what? I'm going to book them again in the next few months just to make sure my spirit's right. And I learned that lesson. And so I went back knowing I wasn't going to get a hotel. I went back and preached there again. And those people are still my friends to this day because the kingdom transcends culture. That I didn't act how the culture would want me to act. I acted in alignment with what, how the kingdom, how the king would want me to act. That's what I'm talking about, loving your enemies, uh, loving people. I get nervous around people that want me to hate a side or hate somebody. I don't hate anybody. I pray the blessing of God over everybody. There's people that that hate me, that want to destroy me, that don't uh, don't want to see me succeed, don't want to see me successful. And you know how I feel about those people? I love them. And many times throughout my ministry, I I have served the people that are trying to harm me. And and you won't hear a negative word out of my mouth about them. Because I choose to bless and love. Not because I expect a pat on the back, but it's because I'm living under the influence of the kingdom of God. And no matter what they're doing to me, I see them as a child of God. That That's a different level. It's a different standard. And I can't tell you how many times that I have, you know, helped people and uh, even promoted some people that were strategically trying to destroy me behind the scenes. And doors that they have walked through because I recommended them while knowing that they are actively working against me. But I understand that the kingdom of God is bigger than one individual. So I'm not going to hold someone back because of how they're treating me. They have a gift that the kingdom needs. So I'm going to push their gift that helps the kingdom over how they personally feel about me. The kingdom's bigger than me. And so some people allow their hurt feelings to sabotage the progress in the kingdom. But I will never shut a door on somebody. I I will never shut down somebody's ministry. I, I want the kingdom of God to expand. They don't have to agree with me or like me, but it's not, it's not going to change how I feel about them. I love them. And this is what I'm talking about, living in kingdom alignment. Kingdom alignment. I've, I've gone, I've, I've gone, uh, I've gone to, to, to places where the whole intent of me being there the person's trying to put me in in my place and trying to to sabotage me, trying to hurt me, trying to <clears throat> uh, throw a dagger at me, trying to do. And you know how I respond? I confuse them. I just love them. I just spend time with their kids, spend time with their family, send them a thank you card, bless them. Because how they treat me doesn't determine the love I have for them. I'm, my standard is the father not them. 
because look at verse 45 that ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust what he's saying here is look how god does good to everybody the unrighteous he still wakes up in the morning puts breath in their body uh, uh, allows their heart to function properly Every morning he allows the sun to rise on them. Every morning he he sends the when he says it sends the rain on the just and on the unjust, he's not talking about rain in a negative sense. He's talking about it in a positive sense. He sends a rain upon the unjust harvest so their harvest can grow. He he blesses their harvest even though they're not living right. That's that, my friend, is what you call unconditional love. That's unconditional love. That he's treating them kind, not based on how they're treating him. He treats everyone with gentleness and love and kindness. Which, not, which isn't even predicated on how they, they live for him. It's just because he's a good God. And he's a heavenly father. That's why you see businessmen, unrighteous businessmen, you know, blessed. That's why you'll see, you know, uh, people that lie a lot or anything. Like, you'll see them, you know, have uh, some success in some regard. That's not because of what they're doing on their actions. It's because of the consistency of God. He is a good God. And that is the standard. He is the standard of perfection that we are trying to live up to. He says, because listen, if you just love those that love you, you're not different from anyone else. Atheists do that. People that, people, uh, murderers do that. Uh, a sinful people do that. The publicans do that. If you only say hi to people in the church, what, what do you do more than others? Don't the publicans do that as well? So in the kingdom culture, in the kingdom standard, God is the standard. So I treat people with love and kindness, not because of how they're treating me, but because that's what the father expects of me. This is what Matthew is presenting that that Jesus was preaching, this was just a phenomenal doctrine. Jesus is the greatest philosopher. These are, this is an amazing philosophical concept. The, the consistency. And, and, and anyone that knows me, there's not a person in this world that can say, I, 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 I wasn't kind to them. Because I am intentionally kind to everyone. I, I treat a young five-year-old the same way I would treat a CEO and that is with love and kindness because they have been made in the image of God. I treat the poor the same way I treat the rich with respect and dignity and love. I treat the, I treat the doctor the same way I treat the farmer with, with love, with, with appreciation, with respect. That's what I'm trying to show you. Why am I doing this? It's not because I'm, I'm a good person. It's because he is a good God and I want to live in kingdom alignment with his teachings over the cultural pressures of society.
And so the culture will, will try to pull you into hating people, want, wants you to hate the right or hate the left, wants you to hate this ethnicity or hate that ethnicity. That's what the culture wants to pull on you. But Matthew is presenting the ecclesia, the church standard. It's different because it's the influence of another world. That's why Paul said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. The rudiments of the world, that is the patterns of the world. That, that we have to pursue Christ and not be influenced by the patterns of the world. This is what Matthew is speaking to as he is getting the discourse of Jesus, which is comparable to Moses on the mountain, uh, getting the, 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 in, the laws and for the tabernacle. But, but, but Jesus is on the mount giving laws for you as a tabernacle. Is showing how things on the inside are supposed to be in your tabernacle. You are the temple that he dwells in. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And this is astonishing to the Jews that, that Matthew would teach this and say this. Oh, I pray this is a blessing to you. I'm enjoying this. It's deep, but going verse by verse, you deal with some uncomfortable topics, but it's the word of God and it's going to edify you. Munch on it. Take notes. I love you guys. Thank you so much for taking time to listen. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, for more information, you can follow my social media page, Victor M. Jackson, or you can come visit us in Orlando, Florida at Bible Center of Orlando. Thank you for joining us. God bless.